When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk about the first week of the offseason with Dan Feldman. He writes for Pro Basketball Talk, of, and, and which is a part of the NBC Sports family, because he's really knowledgeable about the cap and everything like that, but also because he was a part of the mock offseason that we did for the Dunked On podcast, which was Dan, Nate Duncan, and I. And that process helped me crystallize what I was thinking about the offseason and we we ended up getting a lot of things right, which was not necessarily a part of it because we were trying to behave as kind of we thought the team should behave. But we talk about how the offseason's gone so far, but we also put it in the greater context of what we could see in the 2015-16 season. Obviously, that's looking forward a long way. There's a lot that has to happen between now and then. But conversation runs about an hour and a half. was really, really fun to do. I love having Dan on, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I feel like, considering your background, the place to start is just with one name, and that's Reggie Jackson. What do you think happened? I think, and I don't know, but I think the Pistons decided Reggie Jackson is our point guard. He's our starting point guard. So we're going to pay him like a good starting point guard, because that's what we believe he can become. Not necessarily using their leverage because he's a restricted free agent. Uh, not necessarily holding him to the standard of what he's most likely to become or even the downside of what he could become. But I think this is a very optimistically guided contract. Yeah, I think optimism is probably the the right functional word for it because he did play well down the stretch. And yeah, that's a small sample size, but he also had good chemistry with Andre Drummond. But the leverage part of it is what was so mind-blowing to me considering we just saw Chris Middleton, who I think is a pretty clearly superior player, take the security of a, or whatever, of a 570, and then Reggie Jackson gets paid 10 million more. Do you think it's possible, and this is sort of what I've tried to convince myself might have happened to give the Pistons the benefit of the doubt, that Reggie Jackson, his agent, came to the team and said, look, at, you know, this is what we want. Here's Team X, whether it's the Lakers or whoever you want to suppose it is. They're willing to give me a max contract offer. You know, I, you know, not a bluff, but an honest to goodness, you know, they'll do it. Why don't you just give me the contract and we can talk about an extra year and then we can avoid the, the trouble of going through that three day matching period? Yeah, I, I think that's probably a big part of how it happened because that's really the only way it makes sense. And it's something that I talked about uh, with Draymond Green and they actually ended up with similar contracts for for what it's worth, and the idea that if you really like somebody, 
the idea of them being on a, a three or a two plus one, because Reggie Jackson would have presumably been on probably a two plus one if he had wanted that. If that's what he wanted, he could have done that. And so that might have freaked Stan Van Gundy out, is that, you know, like, hey, I'm going to go on the market. There's a team that is willing to give me what I want. And if what I want is, because for him, I believe they weren't going to give him a max qualifying offer, I don't think. So then you, if it's two years and a player option, I mean, that's substantially worse for them if they think of him as highly as it appears they do than something else. And so while there weren't many teams with that, that difference might be enough to scare somebody. What, what I think back to is the Roy Hibbert example of, of where he had that. But it was very well reported that Hibbert was going to sign an offer sheet with the Trailblazers. And I think a lot of people still remember it as he did, but actually – you know, the Pacers said, no, we're going to match. Like, let's just not put anybody through the trouble. Why don't you just sign the same deal directly with us? And there were no reports of Reggie Jackson was going to do something. That doesn't mean he, that situation didn't exist. But because there weren't those reports, I'm not sure whether that happened or not. I, I sort of would guess it didn't, but I think it's possible, right? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. And where do you see because you've you've obviously seen more of him. I mean, I've seen plenty, but where do you see Reggie Jackson fitting in the overall point guard landscape? Maybe now, but more, you know, like when he's closer to his prime. Uh, see, this is where it gets scary for the Pistons when you talk about it in that context. Uh, middle of the road? And and that's not a knock on Reggie Jackson. It's just a, such a strong position, right? Like, yeah. there's there are so many all-stars and near all-stars. I mean, Mike Conley can't even get an all-star game. He's so much better than Reggie Jackson. It's a tough position, and you could look at it one of two ways, that you need a point guard who's pretty good to have a chance of doing anything, so you have to get one. Or you can say, yeah, there are so many pretty good point guards out there. Don't overpay for one because another one will come along. Maybe you can trade for Ty Lawson. Uh, there's some other guys out there. So that's when that's, I think that's the one context where the deal looks really bad for the Pistons. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that people talk a lot about how point guards, and obviously this year was a, was the first real strong exception that I can think of in recent years, that dom teams dominated by point guards don't win championships. And while I have a strong opposition to evaluating teams based on championships because those teams al almost always have special players and get out of that, it is true that for the most part, teams with elite point guards at least make the playoffs. They might not go farther than that, but they do that. You think about a guy like Jason Kidd, you think about Chris Paul, even when some of his teams were inferior. When Darren Williams was Darren Williams, that was still the same thing. And and those are guys who people thought were good. It's not like, oh, they're making the playoffs, so that's why they're hyped. And if they see Reggie as being a guy with the potential to go into that group, then that would be a nice thing, especially considering getting in the playoffs in the East is a substantially easier road than an average one over the last, let's say, 10 years. Here's the counter to that. I don't want to put you too much on the spot uh, without knowing any of the numbers, but do you think, so you say teams with really good point guards seem to usually make the playoffs. Do you think teams with really good point guards are more likely to make the playoffs than teams with really good shooting guards or really good small forwards or really good power forwards or really good centers? Uh, I, I think that, if you're going in an overall top five, like I, I think that's a fair way of going elite. Off the top of my head, I would think so, but it's more that three to five range than the one to two. Like I mean, if you have one of the two best players at any position, you're going to need to be pretty bad overall to not make it. I mean, because you think about those types of guys. I mean, that's like Kevin Durant, 
Chris Paul, you know, type guys in that range. But if you're if you're stepping down a little bit, I mean, where I don't know where I have Carmelo right now in the small forward, power forward rankings. But I mean, you can see guys like that miss the playoffs. Yeah, that's true. I'm, try- I'm trying to think of a like the best point guard to miss the playoffs in recent years. And I'm not coming up with anybody, which I guess would support. Well, it would it would be Russ probably, but obviously that oh, team. Oh right, that's a well, but but that's what that team could have been, and that's what that team might be a season from now. Oh yeah, it might be. Yeah, Although, well, presumably well, the West won't be quite as good. Like it, I think it's peaking right now. The West, I think, has to come down a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because the the Grizzlies are. Congratulations to them! It looks like they're getting Marcus All for a while, but they're on—they're a team that it looks like they will be worse two years from now than they are now. Whether they'll be better next year is is an open question. I think they might actually be better in 2015 than they were in 2014-15. But other than that, they're one of those teams. Uh, the Clippers, obviously, we talked about. I think that you're right that we're going to see some of that with the West. What I'm wondering is whether the Young teams like the Jazz will get better before those teams get worse, or whether you'll see kind of the Memphises and the Clippers hang on for a year or two as the other teams catch up. And I think that's an open question, and we'll make it a lot more fun in a way. What I think is interesting is those young teams, they're not just patiently waiting for their turn, which I think might be the right strategy. Uh, but you look at, you mentioned the Jazz, the Suns go out and get Tyson Chandler, and I know they've traded some players and are maybe maybe making other moves, uh, but they're not waiting their turn. The Nuggets have not been waiting their turn, although I don't know what direction they're going now. The Kings aren't waiting their turn. I mean, these these younger, not quite as good teams, they're not waiting. So maybe we'll get to, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's not going to, the West is not going to regress immediately. Maybe there's going to be a year or two now here where there's this, the top teams are coming down, the lower teams are coming up, and the overall the conference is just going to be just as strong, if not stronger. Yeah, and I, the team that, I, when I've been thinking about this, that I think benefits the most from that is Minnesota. Because Minnesota isn't going to get good fast enough to really be hurt by that, like the way the Bucks were. Like, theoretically, if you're thinking of the overall arc of the Milwaukee Bucks, it would have been better for them to be a little bit disappointing, get like, and this is the same thing with the Celtics, get like the 10th pick, get a little bit of a better player, and then use next year as the transition. You can say the thing that, yeah, it's nice to get some playoff experience, and that's definitely true, and they gave the Bulls a, a better series than I think most of us thought. But there, it's going to be a lot harder now for them to add that piece than, than it would have been if they had kind of gotten it last year. I agree with you on that. I think the Celtics are a little bit in a different boat because, one, they have all these other picks, especially from the Nets. And, two, I think even more so than the Bucks, I think they made an honest-to-goodness effort to be bad and to have a rebuilding year. But the East was so bad, and Brad Stevens is too good of a coach. They just couldn't do it. So I think once you get to that point, I, I want to make sure I understand this right. Like, you're saying do it before the season. You're not advocating that they should have done something differently during the season. No, no, right? no. No, if if things start going well, then you just have to run with it and that's great that your team is doing it and you you embrace your success. Um and and I and I think that's why the, you know, it's this it's the issue the best team that I can describe this with recently is the Raptors because the Raptors got good a little bit too early after the Rudy Gay trade. And that led to them kind of keeping their roster a little bit more still. They made some big moves this summer, and we'll talk about that. But 
I feel like if they had done a little bit worse, then they could have set themselves up for a higher a higher ceiling, maybe a lower floor. But for me, I'm so, I'm somebody who's focused on ceiling. Though, in the case of the Raptors, you can make the argument that hey, if you're hosting a playoff series, that's a really nice place to be for Toronto. It is. I- I'm partially playing devil's advocate, but only partially. So the counter to that I'd give is, one, this that's the common rebuilding path, is getting bad to get good. So you're competing with other teams for those higher draft picks if you want to go that route. The team that sticks out to me, and maybe this is just my location bias, was the Pistons. So in 2001-2002, their starting lineup was Chucky Atkins, Jerry Stackhouse, uh, Michael Curry, Clifford Robinson, and Ben Wallace. And they turned over all of that except for Ben Wallace by their 2004 championship. And the reason they could do that is because they hired a good coach in Rick Carlisle. They won 50 games in a week east. And all their players had higher trade values. So they sold high on those other guys. They made, you know, then they upgraded their talent. And then they were good enough to win. So I think there is something to you get good first. And then you're working from a position of strength in the trade market. That's a really good point in terms of the idea of the trade market. I'm somebody who thinks about improving teams through free agency in the draft, but you're right that if, if you want to go the trade route, and some of these teams definitely can, Milwaukee is one of those if they want to, then that does afford you more opportunities, especially if your guys are on cheap deals that are easier and more desirable to move. Speaking of the Bucks and that very thing, what did you think of the Jared Dudley trade? I hated it. Uh, I thought that they they basically what it's one of those situations where it seems to me like they did it more like they did it to clear you know about five million in, in space but I don't think that they can do better with that money than Jared Dudley he was on a cheap contract he was team friendly he was seemed very popular with the guys he filled a niche that while not essential was very useful for that team he did it well he did it with a good attitude and he seemed happy to be there that I think that's part of the reason he. He did not exercise his early termination option and stayed there. Yeah, I'm with you. So so that's – I don't know if the Bucks just miscalculated or maybe in this environment now with shorter contracts, it's harder to, to get good and then trade from that position of strength. But I thought, yeah, this is where you take advantage. Jared Dudley, nice season. He's on a cheap contract. Like, you should get some quality piece for him, and I don't think a second rounder from the Wizards is that. Especially when the Wizards have traded so many second-rounders recently. I mean, they traded two to move up for Ubre, from what I recall. <laughs> right. You know, it's it's not the best asset. Yeah. Well, before we really get into the offseason, I thought that one way to talk about it is through the lens of the mock-off season that we were both a part of. So on Nate Duncan's Dunked On podcast, I represented the West teams and you represented the East teams. And how did that process affect the way that you've thought about this offseason? Well, I, I know we've both talked about it, but when I was uh, calculating how much before we started, how much cap room the Raptors would have, and I was floored to see, you know, they're at like max contract level cap room, and nobody is talking about them, and it's because they traded Grievous Vasquez sort of late in the process, uh, right around the draft time, when once everybody had already made their rough estimates of cap room, and before that everybody assumed, or at least I did, I don't want to speak for everybody else, that they would re-sign their own guys and, and go from there. But they carved out a lot of cap room, and, and as we were doing that exercise, you could see the power the Raptors had, and uh, they got Wes, Wes Matthews in our game, and but they were in it for some other free agents, and then you see in real life, they get Damari Carroll, they get Corey Joseph, they get Bismack Biombo. You know, they gave themselves a ton of flexibility. Yeah, and I think they did a nice job with it. The Corey Joseph contract was higher than I expected, 
for I, I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but it, I'm good for good for Corey in that way. But yeah, the the Grievous Vasquez thing changed their changed my thinking about them. They also got a pick in that trade, which is unbelievable. But they they got a guy in Damari Carroll who still fits to me within that kind of be good in the shorter term vision of the team. But he also he's he's kind of in his prime right now. He had just came off a great season. You worry a little bit that it was you know that Hawks mojo kind of like the Spurs guys, but he brings strengths that I think fit that team very well. They need defense. They need toughness. I mean, it was shocking how bad they were on defense last year, and I, I still can't figure out. Do you have an idea of what happened? I mean, Dwayne Casey's a defensive coach the year before they were good on defense, and last year it just fell off a cliff. Yeah, I, I think part of it was Valanchunas not developing as expected. I think, I from what I recall, and this is just totally blind, I think Amir missed some time, and he was a very underrated part of their defense. And what worries me a little bit is that Lowry wasn't Lowry last year. You know, like he, 2013-14, I thought, I, I, that was the year he was snubbed from the All-Star game. I think they put in DeRozan instead of him. And I was up in arms because that year I felt he was the best guard in the Eastern Conference. And so he was that guy who was doing a lot. And then, well, I think point guard defense is broadly overrated. He was just a big part of their success on both ends, and he was still good, but he wasn't that level. Is that your very polite way of saying he got a big contract, he became an all-star, he got all the success, and, and now he doesn't have the chip on his shoulder? Uh, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like Kyle Lowry always has a chip on his shoulder, <laughs> but it's possible that it was a little bit of each of those and a little bit maybe even of the early onset of just being a little bit older. That's a good point. How old is he now? He's... Uh... He's twenty nine. Yeah, or he's so? he'll, he's twenty nine. He'll turn thirty during this season. So I mean, that's pretty much when point guards are in their early decline phase. I mean, a lot of guys have extended that st- extended that kind of peak to more of a, a solid plateau. Like that's kind of what Chris Paul is doing. But you you start to get a little bit scared. But what Damari does for them is he says, okay, you know, the next two to three years, that's our run. We're gonna do that. And what's nice for them is that. As soon as that ends, they're out of almost all their contracts. So they're they could if they if they're happy with it, if they you know, if if they, they can do a lot of things at that point. They and so that could be retaining those guys and trying to do a run, that could be just doing a complete reload. There are gonna be some by that point the cap will be in such a different place that they can do that and by then they've probably established themselves as a a free agent destination, they will have already, not like, you know, the destination, but one that guys consider, the will have just had the All-Star game, so people will remember that, and I think that'll be a positive experience for people, so I like what they did broadly, especially considering their status in everything, I mean, it was, I thought it was fascinating in, in the mock-up season you talked about going after Paul Millsap, I think that would have been interesting, but he ended up getting paid by staying in the same place, so, which is exactly what happened in our mock-up season, actually. Right. I know I agree. I like broadly what they've done. They've recommitted to their defensive identity. I think they're going to make a run at Kevin Durant next summer. Uh, when the cap goes up, they should have room or at least should be in position to to be able to create that room. If you know, if you can get Kevin Durant, you move on other pieces. It's, it's not a problem. Uh, and if they're playing well, one, that's the only way Durant's going to look at them. And if they're playing well, like we've talked about, you can trade those players from a position of strength. Has there been a, a single move, or it can be a series of them, that were the most surprising to you, either direction? Oh, boy. Um, 
you know, I w- I'll be honest, maybe I'm just too naive, but I was surprised that the Kings just hired George Carlo or George Carl, and now there's a controversy about whether George Carl wants to coach DeMarcus Cousins, who the Kings have made their franchise player. You know, I sort of figured in that process along along line, say, hey, George, uh, do you want to coach DeMarcus Cousins? Do you think he's a good fit? How are you going to use him? And I don't, I, I'm very surprised that went south as quickly as it did. Yeah, and the way that I, I've thought about this, and obviously coaches would hate to would hate for you to say this to them before they take the job, but I would kind of say, hey, DeMarcus Cousins is our franchise guy. It would take a whole heck of a lot for us to choose you over him. Like, I would say that when I was considering a coach, because if not, you're sowing the seeds for potential problems, because I, if it were me, I'd be setting that table and saying, hey, if you don't like that, obviously I wouldn't tell DeMarcus that. <laughs> but the idea being that if you have to make a choice, you've already set yourself up for what that is, and you get the coach knowing that that's where you're going. And so they try to make it work if it doesn't work. And so some coaches might say no, but I think those are the ones that you wouldn't want because I don't know that George Carl would have taken the job if they would have said it that way. Well, maybe they did. I I think it depends on the coach, and I don't want to speak on Carl specifically, but I could definitely imagine a scenario where Carl thinks one or both of two things. One, I'm George Carl. I've won a lot everywhere. I know they want DeMarcus Cousins, or at least they think they do. But if I have a problem with him, I'll find a way to convince them to move him because I'm such a good coach, and and they'll see how good I am. Or I could also see him thinking that that it would work, and he changed his mind. Or the other possibility is I could see him thinking, I'll try and make this work. If it doesn't, and they have to fire me, I'm going to get millions of dollars, and that's not a bad fallback. That's a really interesting idea. And what I think has bothered me even more than that, and even more than Vivek Ranadive reportedly giving what, whatever that means, giving DeMar- DeMarcus's agent the permission to ask about a trade, I, I think some people have told me on Twitter, they're like, oh, you know, you can do that, and then we'll just say no. But to me, if you're not going to trade a guy, you don't give an agent permission and what what's so shocking to me about their offseason, beyond the whole horrendous Sixers trade, but even kind of with that in the pieces, is that if you took everything they did and you took out the fact that they had DeMarcus Cousins at center, most of it makes sense. They deepened their bench. They added guys who are kind of more in the win-now phase. But almost every single player they added, other than Bellinelli and bringing back Caspi, in some way, shape, or form, directly conflicts with what makes DeMarcus Cousins so good. Right. I like each of their moves in a vacuum. And to go even bigger picture than the fit with Cousins, I think you make an excellent point, is what we were talking about. The West is so good. Like, what's their upside? Tenth in the West? I mean, and that's if things go well. What What's the point of shooting for that? Yeah, especially considering that they have this top ten pick protection on the, on the one that goes to that goes to Chicago by way of by way of Cleveland because it was a part of that horrendous JJ Hickson trade, and the, I don't think they're going to be outside of the ten worst records, um, which is also a really bad sign when you're a win now team and you're not going to be outside of the bottom bottom ten. But there's that as well as what you said, and and the way I like to think about it is if. Is there a path for them to make the playoffs? And so you can think of that in two components. And one component of that is, okay, they can jump a bunch of teams, but 
Last season, making the playoffs in the West was 45 wins. There was a team that had 45 wins and didn't make the playoffs. And most of us expect, and this was true when the Kings did their trade, it's not like they did this trade in May, that the getting the eighth seed could be even harder next year than it was this year. Yeah, I mean, the Suns were below that. Uh, they may or may not be better. The Jazz should be better. I think the Nuggets are going to be better coached. We'll see what their roster looks like. Uh, the Timberwolves, you know, I think a lot of times... And I agree with you. I do think the Timberwolves are timing this correctly and are a couple years away. But teams like that often break through before people are ready for them to break through. I don't think it's going to happen next year, but I would not be surprised if that team is is more dangerous next year yeah, than most people think. I, I could see them having an outside shot at 30, and maybe even more, because remember that they had a lot of worst-case scenario things happen. I mean, they had Ricky Rubio out for a long time. They shed Kevin Love for guys that were really early in their development process, and they made the Wiggins trade later in the process than most of these things happened. So you had to deal with adjustment and everything like that. So I, I think that there is some potential there and that they get more into the mix. And the other team that that bodes poorly for is the Lakers, because well, I don't know what exactly the Lakers want, but that bottom of the West is going to be substantially better. And you can talk about how they should be better than they were, and I would agree with that. But let's say they push it into the like even the 30 to 35 win range. I don't think that's going to be, you know, I don't think that's going to really knock any doors. But at the same time, you know, that would be progress for them, I guess. I mean, they're going to, you, they have to count on losing their pick because it's top three protected. And even if you finish with the league's worst record, your odds of keeping it aren't good enough to, to tank for that. And it's too hard to tank for the very worst record anyway. So I, I think they have to count on losing the pick and be grateful if they keep it. So at that point, yeah, whatever incremental progress they make is good. Uh, the Kings, I guess, I guess you could make the same case for the Kings now, although the fact that they traded this this pick swap with the 76ers, that's their own doing. Uh, but once they're in that, sure, I guess incre incremental improvements, great. <laughs> yeah. What, one thing that I've been thinking about, and I'm very encouraged by this, and injuries will obviously change this equation a lot, but I think there are going to be substantially less just out-and-out -out terrible teams next year. And it, as I said, injuries will make that. But, you know, you see teams like, I think the Knicks got better in very material ways. That doesn't mean I think they're going to be a playoff team. The Magic should be better. I mean, they, they built around it. They got they got Hazonia, the Pistons, I think. You know, like, so those teams that were in the 30 range or worse, I think all of those teams, except for maybe Denver, because we don't know exactly what they're going to do yet, all those teams got better except for the Sixers, and the Sixers will get better just with aging. I'm not sure the 76ers will get better just because their roster composition is going to be more screwed up. Oh, that, yeah, that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, because they they definitely, assuming they end this coming season with Embiid, Noel, and, and Okafor, which I fully expect them to, their guard situation is still horrendous. Right, which I think they're okay with. Like, they, oh, they yeah. see the upside in that. I mean, Stauskas, I, I, I've considered the possibility that he might start for them, and he did not do well last year. Is is Roten going to be the starting point guard? I think so. Uh, let me. 
off the top of my head, I mean, because they were after he got hurt, they were starting guys like Cannon, and they had Ishmith, who's a free agent still. I mean, they were talking about. I mean, McConnell played decently in summer league today, but I mean, I don't think you start. I think you start Roten at the one, and then you play somebody who can actually shoot at the two. Whoever that is, I don't exactly know right now. Or maybe Robert Covington. Maybe he's a little too big for that, and he has to be at the three. But he could. He'd be a potential guy yeah. there. Yeah, I guess but you could you could use Jeremy Grant, I guess, if you wanted to do but holy crap, that's a that's a rough lineup if you're gonna start Roten and Grant or Covet you know, whatever you're gonna do there. Like right now they're they're at the bottom. But I, I the other thing with the Wolves, we talked about them, is that they're they're at the point now and it's totally fine to be there when you're where they are in the process where oh I think a lot of their pieces don't fit together. You think about somebody like Nikola Pekovic he is a talented basketball player, which in some ways is a problem, but I don't think you want to play Towns with him. I don't think you want to play Jang with him, but at the same time, he's a veteran. He's kind of deserving of minutes, so they're going to need a little bit of time to sort it all out, but at the, but they have talent, so I think they'll be all right. I'm with you on Jang and Pekovic, but why do you think Towns and Pekovic wouldn't be at least a decent match together. Well, I think that the reasoning is that I think Towns is more of a center. I defensively, I think that his his lateral quickness and things like that, I think that his his strengths on defense are more in that. I think that you can he's better as a rim protector than he is as a man-to-man defender kind of in that way. But I think in, in stretches of work, the other issue my hope that they do that is that I mean Flip Saunders is kind of legendary for not encouraging his guys to shoot threes and I feel like he would be more amenable to that if Towns is playing the four than if he's playing the five. That's a good point about about defense. I guess I was thinking more offensively. I think they'd be fine together. Oh, yeah. Um, Offensively, I mean, that's part of the reason why I was so high on Towns is that I think offensively he can be a four or a five, which is why if you can do that with rim protector skill set, that's awesome. Like, that's why I liked Anthony (laughs) Davis at center so much because you you can do totally different concepts offensively when you're not tied to that. And I mean, if you want to bring up the example of the Warriors, you can, but if teams have to respect every single guy on your roster at the three point line, it's very hard to process that as a def- as a defense, because that opens up so many lanes because if it's kind of the idea of gravity, but it's to an accelerated level, because let's say you're a team that has a great rim protector. Like this was something the Warriors did with Mozgov. They were able to, for a couple of different reasons, functionally take him off the floor, and but more than that, they were able to negate the strength that he had had for the entire series because he had been just sitting in the lane and just wrecking them. And if teams can do that more regularly than anybody's done it recently, that's a huge tactical advantage. Yeah, I've really started to believe in that more to the point where I go back and forth. I'm curious what you think of. Just how much talent are you willing to get? Just overall talent, and maybe maybe I'm not judging that the right way, but just overall talent, are you willing to give up to have five shooters on the floor? Well, I'm still not willing to give up rim protection for it because I think that when you're going back the other way, that's it's kind of the idea that you still need to have that person who can make everybody else's drives worse. So if you can get that, in somebody who is who is a shooter. Like, the example for me of that is, is a guy like Myers Leonard. Myers Leonard is 
has a lot of flaws. I mean, his, I think his rim protection numbers are also largely a virtue of small sample size. I think that because he was pretty high on nylon calculus's rim protector list. I think part of that is just, you know, sample size and things like that. He was also playing against backups for the most part. But if that is close to legit, I think that you, there, there's a very intriguing component about having him at center because he can actually shoot the three and he's also a very good free throw shooter. So... That's kind of the point, but for me, rim protection is still non-negotiable, which is why guys like Andre Drummond, guys like DeAndre Jordan, will almost always have a place in the league as, as long as they can make some free throws because they make the other team's offense so much worse. But if you're not getting that, if you're if you're not getting rim protection, then I would go pretty far the other way, and then you start to think about guys like Frank Kaminsky. You know what I, on a related-ish note... You know what I found really interesting this offseason is as much as everybody talks about... So you talk about these rim protectors in the context of do they still have a spot in the NBA, which is, a, I think, been a discussion that people have had, uh, especially the way the finals went or even the playoffs getting to the finals. You know, how much small ball has taken hold. You look at these free agent deals, big men are still getting paid. And I'm curious, do you think that's... Do you think that's just because these big men happen to be pretty good? Do you think the decline has been overstated? Do you think this is old habits dying hard? Well, some of them got paid. Some of them didn't. I mean, Kylo Quinn and Bismack Biombo, two of the guys who are very flawed, but those are things that they actually do well. Those guys got really underpaid, and they're young and still you know, have the potential to improve. But if you're talking about guys like Brooke and Robin Lopez, or you're talking about... Um, so I, I guess I'm thinking even a, a tier down. So like um, Costa Kufos? Like Costa Kufos, Aaron Baines. Well, I think, I think uh, that's... Davis. I think that's old habits die hard, and also the fact that I think you need to have people who can man those minutes when necessary on your team. It just... You ha- the challenge with a lot of these teams, and it's something that the Warriors are an anomaly for, is that most of the time you can't get guys who are willing to sacrifice those minutes if need be. Right. No, that's a good point. I... But, but like, I think a guy like Robin Lopez, for example, I think that he's a good enough rim protector to, to justify that. Where I start to get a little bit, a little bit crazy are, I, I don't I'm trying to figure out the right way to articulate it. Like, let's say Al Jefferson. Like, he opted in, and so he had all that kind of stuff, but... I don't know that his offense is so good in today's NBA. And he's a very good offensive player. I like Al Jefferson a lot. But I don't know that his offense, if you take if you take him not being a rim protector as a given. And I mean, yeah, they had a decent defense two years ago, but I think there's a lot to that. But I'm not sure that I would give him a lot of money in today's NBA. So I, we're talking about where he was a couple years ago uh, and not not just talking that up to, like, age-related decline, right? Right. I think that him being a part of that good – I think, were they the Bobcats still then? Bobcats defense, yep. the one the one when they had the playoff – when they made the playoffs two years ago. I don't feel like he was the linchpin of why that defense was successful. I think a lot of it was scheme, and they had good players at other places on the floor, which they also will have this year. I mean, the addition of Nikola Batum – is going to definitely increase their defensive prowess. And so I think that what makes... So guys like that, and then that feeds into a guy like Julio Okafor, but 
Okafor, I think, has the potential to be so special offensively that he can transcend that limit. And also, he has the potential to be better defensively than Jefferson is now. All right, here's what I think you are skewed a little bit by watching the Warriors because they did something better than maybe any, any team I've seen in a long time, maybe, maybe that I've seen ever, uh, and that's an ability to run when they're, or at least get into semi-transition when there's not a clear opportunity. And I think yeah, that's, that's the true. big, that's a great the, point. Bi- the big benefit of a guy like Okafor or Jefferson is it slows the game down. This is what the Cavs did, I think, successfully. They just weren't a good enough team by that point in the finals. Uh, you slow the game down. You limit the other team's running opportunities. You get more chances to put in your set defense. So I think there are advantages on the other end, even if your offensive efficiency goes down. And I think when uh, Al Jefferson was in his peak form a couple of years ago, I, I think that was the big benefit. Yeah, and I, I still think that that can work. I just think that it, it ups it ups your degree of difficulty. Like I, th- I think the Spurs are going to do that, and I think the Spurs are going to be great. And it's kind of amazing we've gone this long without talking <laughs> about them. But they're a team that will kind of bridge the old and the new because they their offense is going to be the Spurs' offense to a large point. But their defense, at least this coming year, is going to be a lot more traditional. And one thing I wanted to talk with you about is one of the big differences – that what well, was you could think of it as a small difference, but a big difference between our mock-off season and what they what actually happened is, I made a concerted effort as the GM of the Spurs who got Lamarcus Aldridge, to make sure that the guy I was trading at to clear their space was, was Boris Diaw. They I had to give up an asset to you as the Cleveland Cavaliers to do it, but they traded Tiago Splitter and. Maybe that maybe you could read into that that Duncan's thinking about playing a little bit longer, but I'm trying to figure out considering Lamarcus has been pretty pretty vigilant about not wanting to play setter historically, where whether they just think they're going to fill that spot whenever Tim retires or how they're going to really handle that because while I think his game would eventually be better transitioning into a center spot, we'll have to see if he's willing to do it. Uh, the Aldridge's game would be better transitioning into it, or Duncan's game? Aldridge's. No, so yeah, so my idea is that Aldridge, when he slows down, his he won't be a, a good defensive power forward by, you know, let's say when he hits 33-34. But his offensive game at that point will be pretty sweet for a center because he still has that jump shot. I think he'll still have it at that point. And so you can, and that gets into the idea we were talking about with the benefits of spacing. So I think that his, I think that his, his defense, you can do that. But then of course you run into the issue that he's not a great rim protector. So I, 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 what I'm wondering is, you know, what are they thinking for that transition? Because obviously they have the talent to be in contention for the next four years, as long as they keep things together. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what they think, but if I were them, I'd take that as a cross that bridge when you come to a type of deal. I mean, this is a, a team that can win a title next season. Duncan, you know, who knows how long he's going to keep playing? Who knows how long Ginobili is going to keep playing? Although it's not as if Ginobili is like an essential, essential piece to what they do anymore. Um, but I would just try and put together the best team for next year. And when you can get a player the caliber, caliber of Aldridge, you do that. Uh, and then you figure out the rest later. They're going to have talent. They're going to have Kawhi. They're going to have Aldridge. And I think this offseason has probably changed how free agents perceive them a little bit. And when the cap goes up, if Duncan retires, or I guess even if he doesn't, 
they can dip back into free agency and take it from there, I think. Yeah, and they also have a they have a need, and they have – as long as Popovich is there, there will be players that want to play there. I mean, we saw it with David West. I mean, that's an amazing move for them that I, I honestly think – because they were never one of those teams that – really got those kinds of players they would sometimes they would get bargains and they would get guys you know they would do they would get good players through things like the minimum or kind of avenues in that direction but what they did with west is i mean that he basically added free depth for them which is huge i mean he started on a on a good team last year i mean they obviously were missing paul george so they didn't make the playoffs but and then two years ago i mean that was a team that he was an important part of that people thought had a chance of making the finals. Yeah, but he's a little bit older now. I mean, he was old then. He's only getting older, obviously. I, I, What I wonder about with David West is, do you think he he opted out knowing, you know what, if I play for the minimum next year, that's great? And I, I do believe the sincerity of that he wants to join a contender, and that was most important to him. But when he opted out, do you think he really thought playing for the minimum was going to wind up his best option? Or do you think... He, he perceived at that point, and you could never really know, that the market for him among contenders would be a little bit higher paying. I, I hope he was open to it. That's If I were his agent, that's what I would have told him is, you know, I think you can get more than this. You're going to have to make a decision. But if you are willing to sacrifice that money to do a contender, then you should definitely opt out. You know, like, if that's what you want, you can get that. There was never going to be an issue with that, you know. Whoever he thought was the best or most fun or whatever criteria he wanted to use, team of the league was always going to take him for the minimum. So if he would rather do that, but would he have rather gotten eight million to play for a team or five million for a team that's you know maybe not tier one, maybe they're tier two? I, I would have thought about that. But if if that's what he wanted, then that would kind of be a mistake for a couple reasons. One being that the tier two teams, like if you want to think about places like the Rockets and the Clippers well, the Clippers pre-DeAndre, or the Hawks, those teams didn't really have a need for what he did. So I I hope that, and, and we saw that kind of with him choosing the Spurs over the Wizards, is, you know, the Wizards, I think, are probably either Tier 2 or Tier 3 in terms of title contenders. So I, I think that he probably had to, had to know that this was a possibility, considering how narrow the spaces for, let's let's say that group was the, the Spurs, the Cavs, and the Warriors. I mean... Playing time plus salary on all of those teams was going to be limited always. I, I guess I was thinking more about the mid-level exception uh, and whether, you know, even if it's the taxpayer, I know it's a decent chunk of change more. I don't know if that's important to him. Uh, but I guess that's what more I was thinking was going to one of those tier one contenders, uh, but at least getting the, the tax level MLE and a, and a player option, you know, really the best they could have offered. And, you know, I don't know exactly what offers he had, um, but I I don't know that that was out there at those tier one contenders for him wherever he wanted. Obviously, the Spurs couldn't have afforded that uh, with with their need for cap space. Yeah, and the Warriors weren't willing to. As soon as the Warriors uh, picked up Murray Spates's option, I thought, okay, that's going to hurt David West because they didn't have a need for him anymore. And they now it looks like they you know we don't know exactly what's happening with David Lee, but they really don't have any flexibility. They drafted a guy who's a natural power forward in Kevon Looney, though he's probably not going to play a ton this year, they're, and they're not even going to need him. But I wanted to actually jump back to you were talking about with the Warriors and how unusual they were, and I agree with all that. The other compo- what, what I have to mention with them also is that while they were playing quote unquote small ball, 
they were still doing a good job of protecting the rim. And the, the Draymond, Harrison Barnes at the, at the four and the five lineups still consistently did a good job of that. And that's why a guy like him is so valuable is that you, you if you can do that kind of move without sacrificing what makes your defense so good and actually in some ways enhancing it because you get more switching versatility, then you can do that. But the players that can fill that role, specifically the five, but in some ways the four can be a challenge too, depending on what you're looking for. Those players are so hard that I feel like teams that try to copycat it will often be disappointed. How many players do you think there are there in the NBA who can do that Draymond role of protecting the rim, getting the ball ahead, uh, whether you're dribbling it, making an outlet pass, do, you know, but getting the ball out ahead so you get you're getting running it going the other way after you protected the rim, and spot up it and make three pointer open three pointers at a a pretty good clip. Instinctively, less than five. Uh, yeah. I, I think Anthony Davis could definitely do it. That I, was the name that came to mind for Davis, me. Davis, I, I think Horford. If you really like, if you wanted him to do that and you asked him to do that, he could he could probably pull it off. The other one, though, he would never ever ever do it is LeBron James. Right, LeBron could do. LeBron can do whatever he wants. It's just how he chooses to expend his energy. Exactly, and so I, th- I think that's about the about the group, unless. A guy like Giannis, well, granted, Giannis also can't shoot threes, but I think, and then you're starting to get into that range. And then the the count, the the other component of that, if we talk about the importance of rim protection, is there are also very few, granted, some of it's opportunity, there are very few power forwards that can really fill the role if you have a center that can't. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's why Serge Ibaka is so crazy valuable right now. With Al Horford, I'd say I'd like to see him make uh, those three-pointers, and I think that he has the potential to do it, uh, but I'd like to see him make it before I could put him in that class. To me, he's in that Giannis group of, of guys with the potential to do it. He's obviously a much more well-developed player in other ways, uh, but in this specific role, yeah, I, I think he's merely potential, and the list is probably just two, at least. That's what I can come up with, uh, Anthony Davis and Draymond Green. Yeah, I, I think that's really as far as it goes right now. Yeah, I, I think Giannis would be one. And, and and what's scary is that, you know, you see a lot of guys, there are a lot of... Uh, the other guy who I don't, I really don't think he's there yet, this would be putting the cart way before... Oh, no, never mind. We were talking about the dribbling up part. I was going to say a guy like Miles Turner, but he can't do that dribble, the dribble initiation part at all. No. Um, um, at all. Um, and, and maybe he could get there with outlet passes quicker. Like, you don't have to be the guy who dribbles it up, but you have to get the ball going ahead quickly. Yeah, which is like what maybe what Carl Towns could do. You know, Right, like Car- he's a potential guy for sure. Yeah, like Carl Towns could get the rebound, do that, and then he could be a trail three option, uh, which right. which is which is interesting and, and compelling. And But yeah, I, I think that, and that's exactly what I was saying, that the, the Warriors are in are in such a such a nice spot because they can they can kind of move flexibly through a lot of lineups, but... I, I, I'm fascinated to see, I talked about this a little bit on a, on a different podcast, the idea of whether, I think to me it's a top, right now it's top three for the title p- picture. It's the Spurs, the Cavs, and the Warriors in any order. Do you, th- go ahead. I think you're leaving out a team. Oklahoma City? Yes. Yeah, I think Oklahoma City has the potential. I mean, I want to see it first. Like, we haven't seen them with their fastball since they lost Harden in my opinion, like in a playoff series. We've obviously seen it during the year. They're a really, really good team. But what, I, what I'm excited about with that, and I think that the Thunder will be in there in terms of the regular season record too, which is also important to this whole picture, is 
how much will those teams, let's say those four, but will those teams focus on the regular season versus the playoffs? Like, will will the Cavs do be much more vigilant, which I would really, really advocate, about making sure LeBron gets his rest, making sure that those guys do it? I mean, not only does that have the spillover benefits because you can get Kevin Love more touches and things like that, but because they don't have anything to prove in the regular season. And this is even more true in some ways for the Cavs because I feel like they're going to win the conference in terms of record going away. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think really all those teams are going to go into the season with that in mind to various degrees. We know the Spurs will be committed to it because they've proven it over and over. Uh, The other teams, you know, I think it's really one of those easier said than done things. Once you get into into the throes of it and you're trying to win games because that's what you're used to doing. You know, I, I, I don't have a better answer than we'll see. I just, I don't have a lot of confidence that teams can actually follow through and do it until we see it. I think the Spurs are a little bit of an aberration in that regard. Yeah, and there was also a difference with the Warriors because a lot of the reason the Warriors got their guys so much rest is that they already had the games in hand. You know, they, they weren't doing a, they weren't doing a ton of oh, we're gonna sacrifice a win or sacrifice a game to give our guys rest. They were just beating teams by twenty and sat their guys. Right when you don't have to sacrifice anything, it's real easy to do. Yeah, where, where are you on the Heat? I I still think that their ceiling is pretty awesome in terms of not not really the Cleveland tier, but if you're talking about everybody but Cleveland, I think that their ceiling is right up there. I'm with you. I you know I believe in in the guys they have it in the short term. Uh, they're a team that should be very careful with managing minutes and and managing even games played with Dwayne Wade. Uh, but that lineup, Drogic, Wade, Dang, uh, Whiteside, Bosch, uh, Justice Winslow off the bench, I think they're very good. I, I you know, we, we, is this getting ahead of ourselves? Would you have, who would your number two team in the East be right now? Are we talking about in terms of winning a playoff series or in terms of record? Is there a difference? Yes, I, I see a difference. And the difference is a team like Chicago. Because I think that Chicago will do well. And this isn't Thibodeau killing them or anything like that. They play hard. They're a team that benefit a lot. Actually, another team like this is Memphis. That they play a style that is hard to adapt to and that is a little bit different. And that they play, they part like playing hard is a part of their identity. But... They don't have enough guys, if you play in a seven-game series, that can really strain a defense. To I, I think that they're much they're much weaker right now in a seven-game series than they are in the regular season. I mean, I think they have been. I'm curious to see how much that will change with, with Hoiberg. I think it definitely could change. Um, well, I, I think that was true of the Warriors, uh, at, at least. Under uh, Jackson, yeah. Under Jackson, right. And that changed in a hurry. Uh, so I, I think that's the type of thing that could change near instantly. That It's it's definitely going to be a fun test case because I think part of that is that Steph was just such an amazing offensive player that he got to the point where it didn't matter what a team, you know, that he could, he could do the things that were preventing the Warriors from succeeding, like with the way Chris Paul defended him in 2014. I think that Derrick Rose doesn't have that. Or he hasn't shown that. I can't say he doesn't have it anymore. I'm a, I love Derrick Rose, but he hasn't shown that gear yet. What 
what they need to be able to do with that is, you know, if they can have a guy like Miritich that can create some more seams for Jimmy Butler and for Rose because you have to respect him going further out. And I think that they're a team in that. And the, and another team that I think has that limitation, and granted they did well in the playoffs and I give them a lot of credit, is Houston. I think that Patrick Beverly is a good player. I think he's really underpaid on his new contract. But there aren't that many guys on the Rockets offensively that can beat you. You know, they have a lot of guys that are good and that can take advantage of the opportunities that are created by their best player. And that's nice. And I think that works in the regular season. But I I think that that is the type of thing, like what happens to Memphis sometimes. And granted, Memphis has had some nice runs too, like Houston did. That makes it harder for me to think of them as a title contender in the purest sense. See, I think sometimes it goes the opposite way. So let's talk about the Rockets, where they have guys who who play well off James Harden. But during a long regular season, that's a lot of load to put on Harden. Uh, it's exhausting. I mean, he want, he wanted them to get a another playmaker this offseason. And it, I just think it's, it's just too much for one guy to do physically over a long season. Uh, but in the playoffs, I think you want the ball in, in his hands most often. You want guys who who play well often because you're going to put the ball in his hands. Same same way with the Cavaliers when there's been a lot of talk of, well, they need a another playmaker. And, yeah, that might be true. That might be a nice thing to add. And they, they got one today in Mo Williams. But in the playoffs, their best bet's going to be going through LeBron. He's going to be the playmaker. So I, I'd rather focus on guys like J.R. Smith who play well off LeBron. Yeah, that, there's that's an interesting argument. I would My counter to that would be I think you need a second guy that can do it in a pinch. And I think that was kind of what killed the Warriors two years ago is that Klay Thompson and, and even Draymond, but more guys like Harrison Barnes because – uh, obviously, Jackson didn't use Draymond the way that Kerr did. Those those guys were there, and you can do it through system. I mean, you could think about a team like the Spurs. The Spurs, the, the Spurs, when they don't have Manu on the floor, they don't always have that second guy. I mean, Danny Green isn't a great dribbler at all. Kawhi brought that into his game more than most recent year, but during their title season, he didn't do that as much as he did last year. So yeah, I think I think that there there definitely is an argument. I think the reason the reason that I would urge that I think it's good for teams to have a, at least a strong secondary, and obviously Kyrie is a second primary, is that if a guy is not so good, like LeBron and Curry, that you can take away what they do, or at least minimize it, then you can do that. And I think that's part of the reason why I like Russ and Kevin Durant so much together, is that I don't think any team can shut down both of them. Yes, I, I agree with you on that, that there are different classes of players. And do you think do you think Harden, for you, is he in that class of player where, where you say, you know what, he the ball's going to be in his hands less, not just, but if we have to pick and choose, the focus is going to be on guys who complement him? Or is he just that tier below where you really need to think about getting a, a secondary guy uh, who can take some of the pressure off him, even in those biggest playoff moments? I think he's he's in that in that second tier, but there have been guys in that tier that have done it, like Dirk, for example. Like I was somebody who said with Dirk, I'm like when with that Mavs team that won the title, I'm like you know stop everybody else because nobody else on that team because kid had slowed down a little bit, everything. I didn't think anybody else in that team could create separation, and so I think that if you can do that, but if you can get 
again another guy who can at least create separation doesn't have to be a great player but if they can do that and part of the reason why that's frustrating with Harden is that you are able to since he plays since he plays shooting guard it's a whole heck of a lot easier to find a point guard that can do that than any other position you know if you're in a situation where you at where you're looking for a secondary guy but your guy let's say it's like Stephen Curry and he plays the one well good luck I mean those guys do exist but they almost all have really strong downsides but if what you're looking for is a point guard who can initiate pick and rolls and things like that when Harden is smothered or is struggling or something like that, that's not particularly hard to find. Granted, you're probably going to sacrifice something else. Patrick Beverly is a fabulous defender. He plays really hard. He helps define their defensive identity. But I think that Harden, if you think of him as Tier 2, but even to me, if you think of him as Tier 1, just because the way I like to think about it is, if you put one of the five best defenders at that class of player on a guy, how much of his benefits would be extinguished? And so, like, Kawhi might be the best perimeter defender, but I'm still going to use him anyway because that might be a series. If you put Kawhi on James Harden without another ball handler, I think their offense just goes into a lurch. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and I think the solution, ideally, and you obviously in a salary cap league, you have to pick and choose. I, I really like uh, Beverly is a fit next to Harden. He can make spot-up threes. He's a defender. He's not going to gripe about not having the ball in his hands because the, the shooting guard has it all the time. I, I think it's a good fit. But yes, when you run into a guy like Leonard, it's going to be a problem. I, I agree with that. Uh, so to me, the chance I'd rather take is that you're not going to run into Leonard. Uh, that that you're going to hope that they get knocked off somewhere else in the playoffs, or maybe you're just going to be comfortable with having an overall stronger team and not worried about a specific matchup. Uh, when you worry about that specific matchup, I, I think you run into difficulty. And, and not that Leonard's the only perimeter defender capable of, of putting Houston in that hole, but there aren't many. I mean, James Harden's yeah, a fantastic offensive player. I think if I had to choose, I'd rather have somebody like Beverly. Uh, than that secondary ball handler who's going to create other problems when you're not going against that premier defender. Yeah, and, and you're right that you're when you're talking about that fit next to a guy like Harden, it has to be somebody who's comfortable spending long stretches without the ball in their hands because you have to prioritize keeping Harden happy because he's the guy. You know, you're not he's the MVP candidate. You and that's why Kyrie to me is so special is that he also has the benefit of playing with the best player in the world, so it's a lot easier to defer to LeBron in some ways, but. Kyrie seems like he's really he's he's okay with that role and that's and he's also um, again we talked about the idea of it being a point guard he's a really good spot up player too so he he can thrive on the ball off the ball and that's part of the reason why I think it would work with Curry but you're right that also if you're where the Rockets are you're gonna have to sacrifice something not only by switching Beverly out but in terms of acquiring a player like that who is good enough to start but who has the right mentality. I mean, there aren't a ton of those guys in the league. Right. I mean, I think the Cavs, talking about striking this balance, I think they did very good in getting Mo Williams. You know, the, the type of guy who can who can be that secondary, or even for them, tertiary, uh, ball handler, playmaker uh, from the perimeter. And when he's not in, when you don't need him for that, when you're not going against that type of premier defender uh, on LeBron, you just want to give LeBron the ball and have shooters around him. And maybe even Mo Williams could help in that role. Like, Mo Williams isn't quite...
quite so good that he's going to complain too much about being on the bench in those situations. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, putting it. And the other group that gives me hope for that, and it ties back to a team we already talked about, is Miami. I think that both Dragic and Wade can be that guy or be next to that guy. And that's part of the reason why I like Miami so much, if they can be healthy when they go into the playoffs. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on Miami. I, I think that's a very balanced team. I think they complement each other well. And I was really looking forward to seeing that group healthy together last season. It never really got off the ground because of, of Bosch's condition. Uh, but but I'm, I'm excited for that next year. That's one of the teams I'm most looking forward to see. Are there any teams like that we haven't talked about so far that you think that their offseason deserves deserves like attention for better or for worse? Hmm. You I, know, one team that's that uh, I'm not really sure what to make of. So I, I guess I'd like to hear hear your thoughts on, on the Magic. I, I think for a long time people assumed Tobias Harris would find someplace else that he and Scott Skiles can get along. In, in Milwaukee, uh, they tried to make their play for Paul Millsap. You know, I, I don't I don't know exactly where they go from here. Yeah, that's they're a team in a lot of ways like the Celtics to me, where they have a lot of great supporting pieces, but they don't have the guy yet. And what makes the Magic exciting is that I think they they have they're starting to get closer to having a balanced roster because before I think they had too many guys with overlapping weaknesses in terms of shooting and things like that. I think Azonia helps that to a degree. Also, Aaron Gordon, it's only summer league, but he's been shooting it better, and so if you're going to use him, he's less of a detriment than he was. And he's obviously you need defense if you're going to play Vucevic at the five. But you're right that. They're going to need something else. They're going to need somebody to to step up. And honestly, to me, I think the best way that the best path they were going to have to do that is to be really lucky in the lottery next year. And I don't think they're going to be so good that they're going to be totally out of that possibility. But and it would have been great for them if it had happened this year, though, I think Hazonia will work fine for them. I mean, to me, if they if for me, that guy really for them would have been Towns, maybe, maybe, maybe Russell. Um, but so that's obviously a small, that was a small group. I mean, they could have done well in the lottery and still not gotten either of those guys, but I have trouble seeing how, even if they improve, they're going to be a really potent team. To me, they're one of those teams that can, that can peak with their current alignment somewhere in that, you know, giving a team a higher seed, a tough fight in a playoff series. And, you know, there's something to be said for that. I think that there, there are worse fates in this world than that. But I don't see a guy on this team that when you're that's keeping you up at night saying, oh, my God, we're facing blank tomorrow. And how are we going to handle blank? And it's really, really, really hard in the playoffs to win a seven game series if you don't have a guy like that or even two or three. I, I like your idea of, you know, the way I look at it is every team sort of has a window where they're going to be in the lottery and you come into that and you're, you know, maybe picking really high or have high odds. Uh, and then as you're coming out of that, and I think we agree that's where the magic are, you hope you get lucky before you leave that window, before you're, you know, really making the playoffs or in playoff contention. But if that's if that's how you're viewing it, if you're the magic, why are you signing C.J. Watson? Why are you hiring Scott Skiles? Like, their their roster and where they are seems to be at a different point than how they've approached this offseason in some ways. And I 
you know, I don't think that's going to have a detrimental long-term effect because I, I do think they were just getting too good anyway where their lottery window uh, was was not great, where their odds of getting a high pick, a difference maker, were shrinking. But they would have been higher. And you're adding a win-now coach and some veteran players. And I mean, what do you think they have a de- decent chance of making the playoffs next year? It, that that would justify everything, right? I, I, mean, I don't. Just... I don't think they do. Um, what I actually like the Skiles hire, but in a really counterintuitive way, because I think that. His offense, based on his prior prior incidences, I think his offense is going to be a little bit stagnant enough that they're going to drop a little bit. But what he helps with, and we've seen this with teams historically, is this is a Magic team that needs a defensive identity, and they have the talent for it now. When I think about teams, and a lot of this is because they have young guys, and young guys often defend worse than their physical talent. And that's that's getting into the league. There's no problem with that. It happens all the time. They were a team last year that, to me, was far worse defensively than they should be. And and so, Skiles is a guy who should be able to improve that in a way that I hope has a lasting effect. He, it's something I've talked about with a few people before, is that I feel like there are some coaches that are good at the kind of the, the team building part of it, you know. Getting, getting guys to work together, building a, like a, a foundation in terms of philosophy and everything like that. And then there are other coaches that are, and those guys often are not particularly adept at the high-level tactical changes that are required to take a team like to the title, to title contention. So what I like about Skiles with them is I think he's in that, I think he's pretty clearly in that first group. And that's where I think the magic are. If you think that he's not in that kind of that first group of coaches, then that's where you start to get into problems. Well, I, I do think he's in that first group, but I also think his ability to coach a good defense with the talent the Magic have in a weak Eastern Conference is going to make them get, this sounds so ridiculous to say, but too good. Like, I think they're going to be just too good to... Like in the 35 range? Yeah. Yeah, that could be a problem for them. But at the same time, you know, if if teams like the Hornets and the, the Heat, everybody thinks they're going to be better, it's possible that that gets cleared out a little bit, which, you know, maybe maybe it'll be one of those situations where they win a lot more, where they win more games, but it doesn't hurt their draft pick too much. Like that, that I think that can happen. I mean, it depends. That range bounces around from year to year. Like this time it was more around 30 itself. Like there were a couple teams in that range, but... Yeah, I, I think you're you could be right there because while their offense wasn't great last year, if they can improve their defense by let's say like four points a game or you know like let's say you know four and a half per hundred possessions, they're gonna win a lot more games. Yeah, I mean it doesn't take much in the East, and I I do think the bar is going up, but it it still doesn't take that much to to get into the playoffs, and it takes even less to get out of serious. Uh, winning the lottery or moving up in the lottery contention. So one dynamic that I've had, and you're more connected with the East than I than I am, that I've seen is that assuming you have the Cavs in a tier by themselves, excluding the idea of health, which is going to be a big factor, I don't think that any team has really moved themselves up within the group, the next group. So for me, that would be teams like Chicago and Atlanta, Maybe if they stay healthy, Miami. 
Toronto, Washington. I think that I think all those teams have the cap- you know have the capability of beating one another, and I don't think any of them can beat a, a strong Cleveland team unless you know obviously there are injuries and all things like that. I think the Hawks will probably be worse than they were. I think the Raptors will probably be be better. The Bulls, I mean, that's going to be a big question. But I'm fascinated that nobody in that group really cemented themselves as being a cut above. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, if, if you are going to pick one of those teams to be the strongest playoff team right now, who would you take? I'd take Chicago, but that's only because I think Miami won't be healthy. You know, if if you if you could tell me Miami's 100%, it'd be them in a heartbeat. I, I I really like this team. I think that they have the right pieces in place. I also like their depth, but they are so dependent on every like kind of like the Hawks last year. They are so dependent on all five of their best players being healthy that it's it's just hard to bet on. Yeah, and I don't know how much depth they'll have. Um, well, I guess there's the same issue in Chicago, and I was going to say the Bulls also to the question of. You know which of those teams is second strongest in the East, uh, but those are teams facing facing luxury tax bills, and I'm not sure how much depth they'll have by the trade deadline. That's true because you could see some of those teams sacrifice guys, let's say like Mario Chalmers or Birdman, who are useful components for their teams right now, and the Bulls are dealing with the mini mid level and everything like that, but they still have to pay their guys in their roster. One other really kind of amazing dynamic to me is that. The Pacers right now, they they you know they were a team that disappointed last year. They're getting a healthy Paul George back, but their front court is just it's just a disaster right now. And people have talked about you know Mo, maybe you can play, maybe Paul play Paul George a little bit at the four, and that will will help that. But you don't really have enough depth to replace him at the three. So maybe you saying it doesn't it doesn't matter because they were gonna you know this was gonna be the last year with those guys anyway, but. I, I've been surprised that they have been that they've been kind of satisfied to be where they are. They're a strange team to me uh, because they've talked about playing faster, and yes, I guess their roster is relatively more suited to playing faster than when they had David West and were emphasizing Roy Hibbert. But it's not like the guys they've gotten or kept and plan to elevate into bigger roles. These guys might be slightly more suited to playing fast, but they're not suited to playing fast. This team is not going to run up and down with running teams. So you're less plotting, but you also have less of a unique identity. I don't think this is going to work out for them how they hope it does, at least in the short term. Yeah, and they've just paid a lot of money for multiple years to Rodney Stuckey and Monte Ellis, who I don't think can play together and I think overlap way too much and so like i don't think you want to ever like i think both of them make some sense with george hill it's part of the reason i like george hill but i really actively hate the two of them together and they've just committed to both of them so it feels like they're gonna try to give it a go george hill late last season was doing some really nice things when he wasn't this uh this hybrid type of point guard when he was the real true lead guard. I mean, it looked like a breakthrough to me, and maybe it was a small sample. Maybe it was some of both. Uh, I'm a little disappointed we're not going to get to see more of George Hill traditional type point guard responsibilities. I'm really disappointed too, and that's part of the reason why I was really frustrated with the way that they used their money and also the chronology of what they did because 
if they were willing to move Roy Hibbert for nothing, and I talked about this a little bit with Nate yesterday, if they were willing to move Roy Hibbert for nothing, I think they should have had a completely different concept of their cap space because if you're going to do it for nothing, then why are you getting a guy like Monte Ellis who's peaking, who's going to be his best year for them is going to be this year. Why, why would you invest in somebody like that when you could either use the space as a way of sponging up and getting future assets or go after and be more aggressive, you know, kind of do like what the Raptors did and aim high and go for go for a different type of player and if you don't get them then you can slide into that realm. Yeah, that's a good point. I I guess the counter to that is we don't know they knew at that point they could move Roy Hibbert for nothing. Maybe that's something that emerged only once the Lakers struck out on on everybody else. I guess, but I I feel like it was it was sort of inevitable that somebody was going to be desperate enough to be willing to take him for nothing because Roy Hibbert is clearly a better player than a guy like David Lee. You know, like Roy Hibbert is a he's a player who can he he does his position his position is a rare one like to me it always felt like I and it was one of those two teams it was either going to be the Knicks or the Lakers was going to have cap space to burn but they don't want to burn it on long term guys and they have a need at that position which considering the center market was pretty barren like it, it to me it felt pretty likely they were going to do that but at the same point I do think you raise raise a good argument that. They couldn't have known it, and if you don't know it with the with the timeline of all of this, if you don't know it, it's very uncomfortable to to you know to basically just be sitting it out or to do that because a team like the Lakers never would have taken the deal that they took on July first. They were only going to take it on the fifth or the sixth, and you can't act like you're going to have twenty million in space before you do. Right, and and with the upside of Montellas, whether or not they could have known that some team would take Hibbert or whether they could have tried to delay talks with free agents and say, hey, we think we might have this money. If you are at all interested in us, hold off. You know, the at least the upside with Monte Ellis is, uh, what is it, a three-year deal? I think it's, I think it ended up being three. It might have been three with a player option. Three with a player option, right? You're getting a guy who... The problem with Monte Ellis is that he, he's not for everybody. He doesn't fit with everybody, and that's probably an on- and off-the-court thing. But as, as far as just in a vacuum where his production level is, that's a pretty good cap number for him, especially as the cap is going up. And so that's going to leave you room in future. Like, you get him locked in now with the old TV contract numbers, and as the cap goes up, you have flexibility to, to build around him and Paul George and George Hill and... And you take it from there. Like this, this is your year to accumulate some assets, and next off season you really make that push to to get good, and you'll you'll probably have a better concept of where your deficiencies are. I agree with your logic, but I disagree with this specific individual because Monte turns thirty, and I think that you talk about guys who rely on their athleticism. He is somebody I, I covered him early in his career. I feel like when he loses a step. It's going to be disastrous for him. Yeah, I guess my question is, who's the better alternative? Well, I, I think, yeah, I, I, but the, my, to me, the better alternative would be to, if you can't get somebody, kind of take a, a mulligan on this year, or just go with Rodney Stuckey. I mean, if, if Rodney Stuckey, he's on a little bit of a cheaper deal, he's a little bit younger, You maybe you do something like that, but oh, I really hate the two of them on the same team. Yeah, they're not a great fit offensively. Defensively, they they can uh, Rodney Stuckey can help Ellis a little bit, 
so it, it could be okay on that end, but I, I don't think that makes up for the offensive deficiencies that they'd have together. I agree. Also, Stucky's only six months younger than Monte. Maybe we need to recalibrate that. <laughs> he's he's April of 86, and I think Monte is October of 85. And Stucky, Stucky's getting a little old quick. Well, yeah, I mean, that was what was with David West. I mean, I, was, I hadn't realized that he's, what, 34 now? Wow. Like, I, I, it, it's starting to scare me a little bit that these guys that, you know, that I followed for so much of their career, that they're getting to the point now where it's like you have to start thinking about, I mean, he's obviously not going to, you know, retire, but that they're getting close to that when they become non-starters, which is a, it's a hard adjustment for a lot of these guys. Yes, that that's the big part of it, is the mental thing of, of what you're used to playing. Uh to take it up a scale, uh, and I guess we could use Tim Duncan as an example. Like, I've I've long believed that if a star player wanted to, really, really wanted to, they could play deep into their 40s. You know, they'd be good enough as a, you know, Tim Duncan is a good starting big man right now. I don't know exactly how long that'll last, um, but as he nears 40 and gets over that line, he could become a backup big man if he wants to, if he has the designer to, to play that lesser role. He could become a third big man. Like, a contending team would love to have him as a third big man on a contract that matches. Most players of that caliber don't want to do that. And that goes all the way down. Guys of Rodney Stuckey's caliber often don't want to come off the bench and play lesser roles. But if they're willing to, it makes things a lot easier. And I think it's also particularly true for guys that don't rely on their athleticism in the same way. Like, I think that you can think about somebody like Andre Miller as another guy who kind of, I mean, he was never to me in that class of a guy like Tim Duncan, but he was in that, you know, that tier down. If you want to talk about, it. I think he was better than his, you know, his prime was better than what we're Stucky's prime, but it's to me that can happen other than a guy like LeBron, because LeBron is such a good passer and things like that. I think that can happen at the five and maybe a little bit at the one, like with a guy like Jason Kidd thinking about him. But I honestly don't think it can happen at the two and the three. Like, I think there's you reach a point with almost every one of those guys, unless you're a two or three that plays like a big man. Like, let's say you're a great post two. Like, let's say Kobe Bryant. Like, if Kobe wanted to play and, you know, assuming his body could handle it, I, I think he would work as like a, a post-up three guy who's getting, you know, 10 to 15 points a game for until he was 45. Well, even twos and threes, like we talk, like who don't fit that role, a really athletic one, if they're starting from a higher athletic peak and they're going down, and injuries change everything with this. But but barring, you know, huge catastrophic injury, when you start at that higher level, if you have that natural aging curve downward, I still think you can play pretty deep if you're willing to. Like, and I mean, if you want to talk about the extreme example of that, like, if he wanted to, I think LeBron could play deep into his 40s. He'd have sure. to probably play power forward, but, which he hasn't wanted to do most of the time. But by the time he's by the time he's kind of built like Carl Malone, and will be, still be faster than Carl Malone ever was. I mean, if he wanted to do that, and the other component of that is, it's a lot of work to be a professional athlete in terms of what it is for your body. And from what I've heard, it gets harder to get to that baseline. You know, even if your baseline's dropping, it takes more to get to that to whatever that baseline becomes as you get older. And so it's just it's not worth it to a point, but. Yeah, I mean, it would it would be awesome to see somebody do it. I mean, you think about a guy like Kareem. I mean, I think it could happen more if a guy wanted it. Right. The the thing is, guys don't want it. When, when you're LeBron James and you've made millions and millions and you're going to make into the 20s and probably by the time he's done be making $30 million a year, 
when you're at the level where you deserve a minimum contract, like when you get to that final level, you're going to put your body through that and, the, you know, take time away from your family for that. Probably not. That's understandable. Uh, but every once in a while, there's been a guy who's who's gone somewhat that route. Uh, Kevin Willis, Robert Parrish. Uh, it's not unheard of, but those weren't the, I guess Robert Parrish was, was great in his day. Um, but the, the top, top stars who are coming from this higher peak, they're not the ones who've done it. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, yeah, that's why it's kind of why Kareem is so amazing is because he, he, you know, he was able to do that, but he, again, he maintained his, he maintained his level a lot better than that. Like it's even easier to do if you can be starting, you know, if you can, if you can stay starting, then man, that's awesome. Right, Kareem was different because he just right. He remained really, really good for a long time. He didn't have to go down to that lesser role. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, any other teams you wanted to cover? I think we hit on. I think we hit. Let me. Let me big ones. Let me take a quick. Yeah, I, 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 the only team that I want to talk about is I'm really, I'm really disappointed in in the Hawks for a couple reasons. I mean, I, th- I understand that if you know if. Millsap and Carroll wanted more money than they could do to fit in everything, then that's something. But the the way that they also gave up their basically gave up their pick to get Tim Hardaway, like I feel like they're ready for kind of a, a not a precipitous drop, but just a notable drop. And not only that, but I think it's going to be a lot harder for them in the playoffs because they're just their talent level just isn't is going to be less than it was. Here's what's really unfair for the Hawks. I think they were due for that drop no matter what they reasonably did. Bring back Carroll and Millsap and, and bring back the whole gang. I think they were due for that drop. So I think some of it's going to get put on the moves they made or didn't make a little bit unfairly. But, yes, I agree. I didn't really like that that trade for Tim Hardaway. I think they're just sort of lowering their level a little bit uh, additionally. I, yeah, I think, they're, I think they'll still be pretty good, but I, I don't see them as an, a 60-win team again or anything like that. And the only other thing is, do you, like, uh, the team that is fascinating to me the most, I mean, obviously there have been other teams that have been higher, but as, as teams like the Spurs have settled and, you know, they're, they're you know, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe they'll get another stud at the minimum, you know, you never know what can happen. But the team that I think is the one that holds a lot of cards for how a lot of things shake out now is the Nuggets. And because they're a team that I think understands where they are and everything, and that oh. has done. I I think they do, and I think also that they've they've done a nice job drafting. I think I really like Nurkic. He's done well. I I Moutier was I think was third on my draft board. I like him a lot. And if and they have guys on expiring contracts. Like if they want to move, well Lawson's not an expiring contract, but like you could see them move four starter caliber players. For for not anything that's going to contribute this year, or you could see them keep all of them, and I think that's really fascinating because not only because of where they fit in everything, but if you're adding a guy like Danilo Gallinari to another team, that could change the complexion of that team a whole lot, and that, that team could be closer to relevance than the Nuggets. So to make this full, full circle and go way back to early in our conversation, talking about teams getting good before they you know work to build the roster with the talent they want, uh, the Nuggets are in the opposite boat. Their player stocks are all at low points. If they make any trades, they'll be selling low. And that doesn't mean they shouldn't make these trades because the alternative might be just riding out a bad environment and letting these stocks slip even lower. And then these players hitting free agency and just leaving for no return. 
But any, you know, yeah, I'd look to trade with the Nuggets because I, I don't know exactly what they want for Lawson. But my guess is that they're going to end up taking, if they trade Lawson, it looks like they will, that they're going to take less than he's worth because the team is coming off such a miserable year. Yeah, that's definitely a point. And and the other, with not with Lawson, but uh, not with Fareed either, who I, I think if you can, I think he's one guy whose value hasn't dipped yet, but this year could be bad for his value, is guys like Gallinari and Wilson Chandler, I I don't think they're going to re-sign. I mean, I have no insight into their process. And so with guys like that, if you can get something for them, especially if your team's not going to be good this year, I think those are the guys that you should strike on. You don't have to do it in the summer. I mean, you can do it during the year. But to me, those guys, there's more of an urgency to move because if you don't get something for them, then they made your team better at a time that you didn't really need it. And you could have gotten something. I mean, I I wouldn't maybe settle for like a second-round pick, but if you could get like a deep, deep, deep first then I would be happy with that. Yeah, I I do think, though, Fareed's value has already started to shrink a little bit. I think there's been, especially the way the league has gone now, which we've talked about, teams favoring uh, five-out systems or similar to that. You know, I think there's been a lot of focus on Fareed's deficiencies. I think a good team could use him. But we've only seen him with a bad team lately. And I, I do think his value has already sunk. Not not to the point you couldn't move him if you want to, or couldn't get something good. I just don't think you're going to get enough of a return to e- equal his value. And the other problem for the Nuggets, which ties in with Fareed, is that assuming they don't want to take on long-term money for their expiring guys, the pool of teams that have either the flexibility to take on the money or have that kind of expiring contract and would be willing to do that and a young asset is hard because there are actually less bad contracts in the league right now. They're about to be a lot more. I mean, we're almost exactly 12 months away from there being a lot more bad contracts in the league. But when you think about the kind of trademark deals of, you know, like moving a guy like Danilo Gallinari for a team, let's say, for like a $6 million expiring and then maybe like a young player, maybe a guy who was taken in the 20s in the last couple of years, then those those fits don't exist super well because they're held by different spots. And, I mean, a team like the Magic, let's say, who has the cap space, I don't think they're going to want a guy like Gallinari because they already have their guys. Right. And I liked Michael Malone as a hire. Like, I did. But this is why I thought uh, D'Antoni would have been the better hire because he's, I think, more so if this locker room is is not too toxic. And maybe it is. Maybe that's why they need Malone and, and the Nuggets definitely have more insight on that than I do. But if it's not too toxic, D'Antoni's the type of guy who can come in, put in his system, uh, mask some of these guys' flaws, and really get their value up pretty quickly, make them look good again. Because these guys all have looked good in the recent past. Like, it's it's... We're not guessing when we say that Gallinari can be a good player, that Fareed can be a good player. They just haven't shown it in the last year, and I think that hurts their trade value. Uh, so if you got somebody like D'Antoni, I think that's a real chance, or would have been a real chance, to get their trade value up, and then you can work from that position of strength. With Malone, it's a little bit more of a long game uh, where you're trying to fix the locker room, and maybe that's what they need. But as these contracts come toward expiring, the clock is ticking for them to figure out something to do to get value. Yeah, and I, the team, as I was kind of looking through it, thinking about who would make some sense, is we considering what they've done, Phoenix. Ooh. Uh, Phoenix, if they could make you know a small asset type thing for when they have a clear need at the three, 
they could get one of those guys. I, I mean, they could get theoretically, depending on you know how much salary they're willing to take on all that. They would both of them would be great fits. I mean, you probably wouldn't want both just because they overlap, but I would love to see either either those guys on that team. Maybe T.J. Warren, something like that, going the other way. Archie Goodwin. Well, they have cap space. Sure, but I you know I think the Nuggets want some talent back. Yeah, yeah. So you give yeah I think you could do. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, and, and they wouldn't really have much of an interest in a guy like Alex Len, though I think Len would be too much to give up. I, Agreed. I'm, I'm still high on him. But, yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, you could do PJ, the guy like him, or, yeah, Archie Goodwin, I think, would be a logical, would be a logical fit. If they hadn't given away Tyler Ennis in the, um, in the, in the trade that got them Brandon Knight, that would have been a logical asset, too. Yep. But, alas. But yeah, and and will the you know will the Sixers still be will the Sixers still be a dumping ground or do you know do team are teams really looking for that? I mean, we talked about the idea of a team like the Heat or the um, or the Bulls, you know, that they're they're kind of on the they're kind of on the line. But I'm really excited to to see if maybe some of these teams decide like it looks like the heat are going to do that okay this is the year that we really need to gun for it we'll bite the bullet the warriors are right now in that same camp too because they know the cap is exploding so maybe we see some of these teams not make those moves to sacrifice their depth because they know it's a one shot deal i i definitely think some teams are thinking that right now but as we get into the season among that group at least one of them is not going to meet expectations and they're going to say well, why are we paying the tax for this season? Like, we're not we're not winning the way we hoped. We can make a pretty easy dump, and that's when you do it. Yeah, that's a really good point, and you're right that there is kind of an inevitability, and also the fact that there are so few teams that have the the real kind of elite flexibility in that way. It brings back the leverage that they didn't really have during the season, and that they won't have next summer because next summer everyone's going to have space. So nobody's going to have the leverage. I actually wrote a piece on this for the Sporting News. Nobody's going to have the leverage to be able to say, oh, well, we, we need assets to get back this guy. You know, there are going to be so many teams with money, they're just going to be throwing it out. So that also is is a factor for if you can see it for maybe some of these teams that want to maintain their flexibility and all that. So maybe they'll be a little bit more patient and go through the year. But yeah, you're right that somebody's somebody's going to be sitting there and they're going to be, you know, at 500 or below 500 and they're just going to say why are we why are we going to pay it this year this guy's either not going to be on our team next year or we're not going to you know we're not going to be good enough anyway and so they'll make a move and so then that's when the Sixers strike another possibility and maybe this is, becomes the reason also but we talked about the Bulls uh with their big men they've got a lot of big men I mean I don't know exactly how ready Bobby Portis will be but I really like that pick making it even more crowded there um, maybe they'll say, you know what, Fred Hoiberg, we're going to bring everybody to camp. You're going to start the season with all of them. Uh, and then we'll see between Noah and Gasol and uh, Todd Gibson who's not getting the minutes. And that's who they look to dump. Yeah, I, I think the Bulls are a really logical target with that. I could see, and, and you could also see teams like the Nets, let's say, let's say they get to the point and they have somebody who's non-essential that they would just give up like a second or something just to, or maybe like a good second. Uh, do they have any picks left? Just to, um, <laughs> just to, to really ease their tax bill because, you know, you get into that point where if you can dump like a two or $3 million guy, that's give, making gigantic savings for your books. And if they can extract some value there, I mean, the Sixers have already had plenty of second round picks, but 
you can see that. And I really hope that Orlando uses their cap space, remaining cap space, as a bludgeon as well. Right. That would change a lot if there are two teams who are capable of taking a lot of salaries back. And, and we'll see where the magic shake out when, when you're using some of your space to sign a guy like C.J. Watson. I'm not really sure they're interested in being that team. Uh, but when the 76ers have a monopoly on it, it's really hard to dump. You have to give up a lot of sweeteners. When there are two teams, it becomes exponentially easier. Well, yeah, and the other team is going to be the Blazers. So I, I think that right. while they've spent money this offseason, they just had basically their entire team, other than Damian Lillard, were free agents. So they had they had essentially kind of infinite cap space in a Sixers-esque way. And the Sixers actually had more money on their books because of guys like JaVale McGee. <laughs> and so they could be somebody for that as well. And I think that would be a nice use for them, especially if they're getting guys who are decent, you know, they're getting guys who can who can play a little bit because then you're um, you can get some value for them, and they're 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 a team that I don't think has the desire to bottom out. No, but they are positioning themselves to to rebound and and change directions on the fly very well. Okay, last question. If you were to pick any any team, if you could like basically pick the talent the talent base of any team that didn't make the playoffs last year, other than the Heat and the Thunder, what team what team's collection of talent right now would you most want to have? Well, I threw up my hands when you said other than the Thunder because that was the very easy pick. Uh, that's a good question. Um. I, I'm debating whether to say the. Are we saying for next year? Wh- whichever, whichever way you want. Like if you were running a team right now, if you want to, you can you can have your priority be winning now. I would probably, with almost all of the teams that are left, say you're probably not going to do a whole heck of a lot this year, but you'll do you'll have more next year. You know, so that's why I'll give my answer first if it helps clarify for you. For me, it's it's the Jazz. Like the Jazz have they have that rim protector in Rudy Gobert. I really like Rudy. They have Exum, who is you know had some, who showed some flashes, and then they also have guys like Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors, who are very good now, are still very young, and can grow with this team, and are unfavorable enough contracts that I'm not saying they should do this, but if it ever got to the point where you wanted to, you could get a a pretty solid amount of assets for them if you decided that you liked something else you had better. So what? My gut answer was the Jazz when I was thinking it was for next year, which probably means they should be my answer overall because they were a historically young team last year. And if they're going to be the best team in the short term, like how could you not pick them? Uh, my follow-up question is, do I get all their future trade assets or are we talking yes. just roster? Let's say you get their assets too. So now I've got to think about the 76ers a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Wolves Tim- a little bit. Right, and the Timberwolves. Uh Man, I like Andrew Wiggins. I like Towns. I think I think I might have to go with the Timberwolves. You know, I I just I think they've got a lot of good young pieces, and they have some veteran movable pieces. I think there are going to be deals for Pekovic and Kevin Martin, and even if you want to Ricky Rubio, I I like the talent they have. I think I'm gonna go with Minnesota, and I really like the Jazz too. But I I think I'm gonna go with the Timberwolves. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Pro Basketball Talk, which is probasketballtalk.nbcsports.com. You can also follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, Dan Feldman NBA. That's D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. I loved having him on. loved talking with him. This has been a really, a really fun week because of all the machinations that have happened and because of the moves. Lamarcus Aldridge going to the Spurs. You think about you know DeAndre with the Mavs, though I think they will be worse next year than Dallas than the Clippers were this year, which is disappointing. But I, I'm still excited to see where Dallas goes eventually. But it's also been fun because for people like me that are big collective bargaining agreement nerds, there's been a lot that's going on. On that note, I just started a new project. It's called the CBA Encyclopedia. It's with Real GM. I'm thrilled for the opportunity. And so what we're doing is we're creating pages starting out with some of the bigger concepts, but we're going to work into the smaller things to explain it and also try to contextualize it. People like Larry Kuhn and Eric Pincus and Mark Deeks do an amazing job. I'm not trying to do to reinvent the wheel and try to overlap over what they do. I'm just trying to create a different way for readers to engage with that material and to learn about it. And also to create a network of, of great writers that you, that people can ask questions to and things like that. And something that Nate Duncan does a lot. It's something that I tried to do. Dan Feldman does that. And, and of course, Mark, Eric and Larry Kuhn. And so it's kind of trying to create a couple different things at once. Real GM is gracious enough to host it. I'm thrilled with that. Also, uh, there's a Facebook page now. I'm probably going to make that my Twitter link, which will compile everything that I do because now that I'm writing for Real GM, Sporting News, and Warriors World, and doing the podcast for dunk, doing Dunked On so frequently, it's good to have – I like to have a place where I can just put everything. And then if you want to see it, you can see it. If you don't want to, you don't have to. The link should be on my Twitter profile soon. If it's not, just ask me. And also, on that note, my Twitter handle is – Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Email is daniel.larue at realgm.com. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any comments, good or bad. Also, I really appreciate it if people, people subscribe to the podcast. That really does help us out. And if you want to rate it, that works as well. It helps. And as I mentioned, I help frequently with the Dunked On podcast, which is Nate Duncan's, which is uh, doing really well. I'm thrilled with it. It's It's been such a fun project to be a part of and it's going to go some really spectacular places so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.